It's been over a year since Roe v. Wade was overturned, and yet the fight to defend the lives of the unborn is nowhere near won. Now more than ever, Christians need to know how to respond to pro-abortion arguments, how to train young people to think biblically about abortion, how to make the case for life. My guest today is Scott Klusendorf, president of Life Training Institute, an organization dedicated to training pro-life advocates to persuasively defend their views. In our conversation, he does something a little bit different. He makes a compelling case for abortion, all so that he can teach us how to refute it through simple logic and reason. I think you'll find that Scott's insights are penetrating, understandable, and easy to apply as you consider the people in your life who need to hear this important message. Scott is the author of The Case for Life, which is now available in a new expanded edition that's been updated for a post-Roe world. Let's get started. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway Podcast. Great to be with you, Matt. So today we're going to walk through a number of common rhetorically powerful pro-abortion arguments that we sometimes hear uh, out in the world. And we're going to do that, though, in a maybe a somewhat unorthodox way. You're actually going to make the pro-choice case as best as you can, kind of giving all of the best arguments that you've heard in support of a pro-choice position. And then after you've done that, you're going to help deconstruct those arguments, maybe help those who, who might even be feeling like, I don't know how I would respond to that. You're going to show where the holes in those arguments are and, and help the pro-life Christian who's listening have a better grasp on how to respond to those things. But before we get to that, I, I wanted just to briefly hear your thoughts on where the pro-life movement is today uh, in light of uh, being a year out from the Dobbs decision. Could you give us a little summary of, of how you see things? Yeah, let me give you five points, I think, that will help clarify. The first is this. We have learned that although Dobbs was a fantastic victory, and make no mistake, it was. Anybody who tells us it wasn't doesn't understand. But let's be realists, too. Since Dobbs, the pro-life position has lost every single time it's been put directly to the voters for a vote. Hmm. Think of red states like Kentucky, Kansas, Montana— In Montana, we couldn't even get a red state to ban harming children who survive abortion techniques. We couldn't even get voters to vote to protect those children who survive abortions. That's how bad it is. And the reason is, I think that, Matt, a lot of times what pro-lifers did prior to Dobbs is we assumed that if we could just change the court and get past a hostile press, the public was with us. Well, we have learned since Dobbs, the public is not with us. And Mm. not only are they not with us, they're not with us in a big way. I don't think there's one state, even the most red state you could pick out right now, Tennessee, Louisiana, Alabama, that if you put the abortion issue to the public for a straight up vote, they would vote against us. They absolutely would. That's because the worldview challenges we face are enormous. And I'm not sure our movement has prepared for that for the long haul. We sort of thought, well, once we can get Roe v. Wade out of the way, we, we've cured our problem. No, we haven't. Mm. We've got a long uphill fight, and we're going to need a lot of informed and equipped pro-life apologists, which is why I put a lot of effort into doing the second edition of The Case for Life for that very reason. What does pro-life advocacy look like in a post-Roe world? where the public is not with us. Mm. The second thing I would point out, Matt, 
is that we have a real issue with what I call poser pro-lifers. And let me define what I mean by that. Every election cycle, we get a bunch of people who flood into the pro-life universe who claim to be speaking for us, who claim to be concerned pro-life people, who basically advise us to not vote for pro-life candidates or for pro-life ballot measures, but instead to actually support pro-abortion candidates because that actually will help us reduce the number of abortions because allegedly these pro-abortion candidates support social programs that will limit the number of abortions. This is nonsense. Think of a society that said, hey, we'll, we'll reduce the number of slaves, but we're going to keep slavery legal. Anybody who said that, we'd right away realize they had a broken moral compass. And yet a lot of these so-called concerned and pro-life people come in. They're posing as pro-lifers. They're not. They're from the other side. They're plants from the other side that are not pro-life and do not help us. And yet a lot of pro-life Christians fall for it. We're going to see more of that in a post-Roe world coming up. Uh, the other thing is we have a real problem with disciplining our messaging. Just listen to pro-life political candidates. They say all kinds of things that are off topic, that really get them into trouble. And we go, oh boy, I can cringe listening to that. Yeah, you can because it's really bad. They don't know how to respond. I wish I could grab, er grab every pro-life politician, sit him in a room and say, here is your seven second pro-life soundbite. Mm, it would go yeah. like this. It is wrong. I oppose abortion because it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Period. Stop, rinse, repeat a billion times. Mm. Go no further. If you say just that, number one, you have a chance of getting it on the news because it's short enough. But secondly, you won't get into trouble going off topic and off script. And I think we've expected our politicians to be apologists when they're not. We need to help them see what the moral logic of the pro-life is, but give them the, the soundbite they can use that will keep them on message. So that's been a problem. The, the fourth area, we have not had systematic pro-life apologetics training in our churches and in institutions that are favorable to us. I know this because I teach at Summit Ministries, which is a Christian worldview camp, where every two weeks we get a new group of almost 200 kids. And these 200 students show up, and Matt, they're coming from some of the finest churches in America. We're not talking about heterodox churches. We're talking about churches that are out there proclaiming the gospel, that are good churches with sound theology. And I ask these students every single session, how many of you before coming to Summit and being exposed to pro-life apologetics for this entire day heard a pro-life talk aimed at helping you engage non-Christian friends on the pro-life issue at your churches? Well, what we find is that out of 200 students present, we get five to seven hands that go up in the room. That's disastrous. When we aren't even getting our pro-life training out to the people who are predisposed to us, that's very bad in a post-Roe world where people are now looking at this issue more closely. And then a final way we are in trouble is we do not have enough people working full-time as pro-life professionals getting our message out there and training our people. As a colleague of mine put it, there's more people working full-time to kill babies than there is working full-time to save them. Mm. And that's very, very problematic. Mm. Uh, how many Christian colleges can you point to right now 
that even have a certificate program of maybe two to four classes aimed at putting full-time pro-life people in the field professionally. None, except one. I can think of one school, Cedarville University. That's it. And everywhere else, there's no mention of pro-life advocacy as a career vocation where you can honor God by doing work, saving the unborn. That's very problematic for our side. So our work is cut out for us. It's good news that Roe is overturned, but we have some challenges. Yeah, a couple of minutes ago, you said that uh, many in the pro-life movement underestimated the worldview issues that were at play in the general population on this issue. Would you put yourself in that category? Do you think you, looking back, were uh, not thinking enough about those issues? No, I actually think I saw the problem coming. Honestly, I don't mean to sound arrogant, but yeah. I was warning my fellow pro-lifers for over 12 years now that we've got a worldview problem, not just a court problem and not just a, a hostile press problem. The culture doesn't agree with us, and a lot of pro-life leaders refused to listen. They were just absolutely convinced that our problem was that the press was misrepresenting our view or that the court was simply in the way of us getting anything done, and they steadfastly refused to believe that we did not have the public with us the way they fantasized we did. Mm. And so, no, I, I saw the problem, actually. Yeah. You mentioned the press, and I, I found it pretty fascinating to see the way the media coverage of this issue uh, has played out over the last year or so since Dobbs. It's amazing to see how many of the most high-profile media organizations have really doubled down on framing this issue th through the lens of women's rights and access to health care. The opening line of one such article really stuck out to me. It read, one year ago this week, the Supreme Court issued its Dobbs decision, which meant that millions of Americans no longer had guaranteed access to abortion care. What do you make of that kind of framing that we just kind of dominates the media landscape that we're all ingesting all of this media? How should Christians think about the way this issue is even talked about? Well, they're outright lies. And my colleagues who did not understand the need for worldview training and apologetics were correct that the press was lying. And they are. It's blatant lies. We were told that women who had ectopic pregnancies no longer would be able to get life-saving treatment now that Roe had been overturned. We were told that women who had miscarriages would be drug off to prison and maybe executed in the gas chambers. And if they managed not to get executed, they would have to prove that they didn't have an abortion because they had a miscarriage. This is all complete and utter lies, nonsense. But the public believes it, Matt. And that's our challenge. We're going to have to puncture these misconceptions at the same time that we're making a persuasive case for our view. Hmm. And if we're not equipping our people to understand these lies and refute them persuasively, it's no surprise that we're going to face an uphill struggle moving forward. Hmm. All right, let's turn then to some of the most compelling and powerful pro-choice arguments that we often hear today. And these arguments that we're going to discuss, they actually come from a talk that you often give when you speak to young people about these issues. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about Dr. Zeke Diversity. Zeke is my alter ego. Uh, I fear that at times people like him better than me just because <laughs> he's he puts on quite a show. But I show up at worldview forums and Christian schools where I do assemblies and other talks, and I will take on the persona of Dr. Zeke Diversity from UCLA, a philosopher in the Department of Epistemology, and I show up and I 
pretend that I'm a pro-abortion philosopher and I don't give them street level arguments. I give them the toughest academic arguments that are out there. Hmm. The stuff that we're hearing that is a bit more challenging. And quite frankly, Matt, I can destroy their pro-life beliefs in about 10 minutes. Yeah. Do you, do you get feedback from students? Do people, or can you even see it on their faces, yeah. like fear starting to well up in their hearts? Fear, anger, frustration. They don't know what to do. In fact, huh. one of the funniest stories was I did this at a homeschool conference in Cincinnati a few years ago, and a group of students and parents came in late after I had started, and they didn't know I was role-playing. And I was just seeing their faces melt with rage as they were listening to me. But I put on a good show and I sound very persuasive to these students and they, they have not been hit with this kind of stuff. But I know if I don't hit them with it, they're going to leave for college and they won't be inoculated against the challenges they're going to face. So I take it on me to give the toughest arguments they're going to hear, not the weakest. Mm. That's such a helpful clarification because I think sometimes, especially as parents, we can kind of think we want to protect our kids from some of these quote-unquote bad influences, but you seem to be advocating the opposite approach. You can't protect them. The only thing you can do is inoculate them to make sure that they have been exposed to this stuff and know why it's garbage before they leave our homes and leave our churches. Mm. Another part of this, as I've thought about uh, the, this talk that you give and, and how you approach this issue, is sometimes it seems like we Christians are very good at knocking down straw men. We can kind of hear yep. some of the worst arguments from the abortion side, and we feel comfortable with those. But some of the arguments that you're about to share with us are really powerful, and it would be hard probably for most of us to know how to respond to those. Do you think that's a, a common danger for Christians, straw manning our, uh, the opposition? Well, one of the things that makes me cringe is when I hear pro-lifers say, we have the truth on our side, so we're going to win. Well, I do agree we have the truth on our side, but that doesn't mean the public is buying the truth. We've got to make good arguments, not bad ones, and we shouldn't dismiss our opponents. We should engage them and refute them intelligently, not dismiss them with labels like they tend to do with us. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's turn then to, to five lines of argumentation that you walk through. And I'll ask you to make the case from Zeke's perspective, and then we'll unpack it together. So the first argument that Zeke would make is that the pro-life cause fails the intuition test. And these arguments struck me maybe as particularly powerful and perhaps uh, seemingly hard to know how to respond to. So I wonder if you could walk us through this side. Yeah, what I do is I tell the students that the pro-life view fails the intuitions test, and by that I mean there is a wide discrepancy between what they say they believe about the unborn and what they actually believe when push comes to shove. So Zeke will stand up there and say, how many of you think abortion is murder? Every hand goes up. I then say, how many of you are willing to pick up a gun to stop it the way you would if a toddler were being killed in your neighborhood. You won't? Oh, there. see, you don't really believe what you say. And are you willing to prosecute women for murder who have abortions? One or two hands go up. See, you. there's a discrepancy between what you say you believe and what you actually believe. And then I'll give them the toughest one. I'll say, pretend you're in a burning research lab. In one corner over there to your right is a vial full of a thousand frozen embryos on ice. In the corner to your left is a six-year-old girl. You only have time to save the embryos or the girl. Which one are you going to save? Hmm. Every hand saves the six-year-old. I say, see, even you don't believe the embryos have the same moral worth, and even you don't believe it's wrong to kill them because you saved the six-year-old but not the embryos. 
Those are examples of intuitional things. And what I do is I press the point, hey, I'm not trying to critique you as pro-life students, but here's the deal. Recognize there's a discrepancy between what you say you believe and what you actually believe in the real world. And you need to be honest about that. So he's playing a real game with them. Yeah. Well, well, that's one of the things that was kind of most compelling about the way you present this even is is even just the way that you frame the arguments, the way that you engage. It comes across as so reasonable, so even respectful and yeah. thoughtful and intelligent. And again, that kind of doesn't fit with the, the narrative that we no. often give ourselves of like the protester on the street just yelling profanities. It's not you're that's not the, the real opponent that we're facing. No. No, and that's one of the things that makes Zeke very dangerous because he's nice, he's winsome, and he makes a lot of sense at first glance or at first here, I should mm-hmm. say. So then what is wrong with those the intuition arguments you just laid out? Because I think we all would kind of resonate with some of the things that, that you were saying right there. Right. Well, first, let's start with rules. In order to refute the pro-life position, you ought to first summarize it accurately and state what it is. And Zeke never does that. He just launches into his five reasons why he thinks pro-lifers are nuts. And he launches right into the intuitions without ever engaging the actual formal pro-life argument. So what is that formal pro-life argument? Premise one, it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Premise two, abortion does that. Conclusion, therefore, abortion's wrong. That's the argument Zeke needs to formally refute. He doesn't. He just launches into his own speech without even summarizing our position. So in one sense, there's not a lot for us to have to refute up front. We could point out that, wait a minute, you're not even engaging our formal argument. Suppose we do save the embryos, or or, or let me back up. We save the six-year-old over the embryos. Okay, how does it follow that because we save one human over others that the ones left behind are not fully human? And by the way, Zeke's whole analogy here is flawed from the beginning. The Burning Research Lab is about who we ought to save. Abortion is about who we get to intentionally kill. Mm. You cannot jump from we save the six-year-old to we get to intentionally kill the embryos, which is what abortion does. For example, uh, not to be rude to you, or Maggie. But if I was in a burning room with you and Maggie and I had a choice to save you two or my daughter, Emily Rose, who is going to toast? Well, (laughs) you two. uh, Now, I'm not going to shoot you on the way out, but I'm going to save my daughter first. Does it follow you're less human and valuable than she is? And the answer is, of course, no. And that's what Zeke is trying to do. He's trying to jump from, oh, you'd save the six-year-old first to it's now okay to intentionally kill the embryos left behind. Mm. And that just is, that's a non sequitur. Yeah. Another way to look at this, the Secret Service will take a bullet for the president, but it won't take one for you and me. Does it follow that we are less human than the president? No, it just means the results of losing the president for the national security of our nation are far greater, so they protect him rather than you. But it doesn't mean that you're less human. I mean, for this matter, the Secret Service will save the president over a city of six million people. Does it follow all six million or less human than the president? No. Hmm. So that, why do you think that some of these intuition arguments, though, can be so powerful? I, as I read through these, they're not the typical kind of argument like scientific, we're going to get to that, or legal arguments. There's a certain kind of, maybe that's part of the power, is it, is that everyone sort of 
just sort of agrees with this. We all feel the same pull towards one side or the, another, and we can't always articulate the difference between, between what they're advocating for and uh, what would be right or wrong. Well, intuitional arguments have power because you don't need a formal logical argument to recognize them. For me to, for example, if I say murder is wrong, rape is wrong, if you were to demand of me that I give you a syllogism to prove that, I would be within my rights to say, Matt, you're just nuts. If you don't recognize that, you don't need an argument. Yeah. You need a shrink. There's something wrong with you. And intuitions, though, here's the key thing. They're trustworthy on the face of it. In other words, we should give them consideration, but they're not infallible. They can be corrected by evidence and logic. And in this case, Zeke's intuitions are correctable because there are, are factual and logical problems that he doesn't bring to the front of his argument. We mm. need to recognize those things like yeah. we just did a moment ago. I'm struck that some of our struggle here is that we, as Christians, often just aren't even we don't have any training in argumentation and in logic. We, we struggle to kind of notice and identify a non sequitur. And so we just kind of yep. get carried along with these arguments. Yeah, really, the rules of the game are crucial. In fact, in the second edition of The Case for Life, uh, I spend a whole chapter on laying out what the rules of arguments are, what you have to do to successfully refute a formal argument. And the reason for that is, too many pro-lifers start making a case the way Zeke did. They just start making statements without actually establishing arguments. And then they get stymied when someone else replies with a statement that isn't in agreement with their own. And I tell students all the time, here are the three most important words in pro-life apologetics, syllogism, syllogism, syllogism. You need to know what your formal pro-life argument is. And that way, if people try to change the subject on you, you can bring it back to the argument you're making and ask the question, how does that refute my mm. argument I just made? Because I think that could be the response is that you say a word like syllogism that maybe half of us haven't even heard before. Does the public have an appetite for formal log logic and arguments, or is that kind of missing the boat in terms of what people are actually caring about? But it sounds like you're kind of saying by having that in our mind and keeping that central, it allows us to sort of effectively, winsomely push back against changing the subject? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, look, it's human nature to change the subject when you're in an argument and you're not winning. Ask any married person when you're in a conversation with your spouse and you're losing, they know you're losing, every rational mind in the universe knows you're losing, the <laughs> Lord knows you're losing. Do you slap yourself on the thigh and say, you know, I'm so glad Jesus put you in my life to straighten out my twisted thinking? Uh, thank you, dear. No, we don't do that. We resist. We dig in. We fight. We look for ways to change the topic, to maneuver, and to attack rather than refute. And mm. this is what happens on abortion. And so by keeping focused on the essential pro-life argument that it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings, abortion does that, therefore it's wrong, we keep the main thing the main thing. And in terms of the public not being schooled in logic. There's truth to that. That means we need to help them understand logic. That's part of why we're not winning the way we should. We have to do some background logic instead of just launching into our own assertions. Hmm. All right. Well, take us then next to some of the scientific arguments that Zeke would make in support of a pro-abortion position. Yeah. Let me, if you don't mind, real quick, just quickly knock out two other intuitional things Zeke yeah. threw at you. He said that if you really think abortion is murder, are you willing to prosecute women for murder? Now, there's reasons why 
pro-life politicians have not wanted to do that, namely that if they put the woman up on the stand and they're going to prosecute her the same way they are going to prosecute the doctor, they won't get her testimony to prosecute him. And secondly, to prosecute the woman as a co-conspirator here, you have to prove a meeting of the minds, meaning her knowledge of the act is identical to the doctor's knowledge. You're never going to prove that in a court of law, and no DA is going to enforce that. So pro-life legislators have prudently said, let's prosecute doctors, not women. But set that aside for a moment. Suppose pro-lifers are inconsistent that we say abortion is unjust killing, but we won't prosecute women for murder. Does that disprove our syllogism that abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being and therefore is wrong? And the answer is no, it doesn't. Our argument can stand even if we inconsistently apply it. At best, all, all Zeke does is prove you're inconsistent. He doesn't prove your argument's bad. This is why we've got to start with argument, argument, argument. Because if you don't, then Zeke comes along and makes the issue your behavior rather than does your syllogism stand the validity and soundness test. Hmm. All right. So let's, let's move on then to the uh, scientific case that Zeke might want to make in support of the pro-abortion position. Uh, what would that look like? Zeke is going to make a big deal out of twinning. He's going to say, okay, if you're going to argue that every time we put sperm and egg together, you get a living human being, what do you do, number one, with twinning, where up to 21 days after fertilization, you could get a, a, a split in that early embryo and you end up with two? And secondly, what are you going to do with molar pregnancies, where the early embryo morphs into a tumor instead of an embryo, now what? How can you say life begins at conception when those two things could happen? And then huh. he would also argue argue that women don't grieve miscarriages the way they grieve the death of an embryo or an older child, and that if they don't grieve those deaths, deaths profoundly, clearly we understand there's a difference between the two. Let's talk about that issue of twins. Uh, how would you yeah. respond to that? Because that, that is one of those issues that maybe many haven't thought about. But once you pose it like that, it's like, you know, are we saying there were two lives here uh, from the very beginning and or another life came into existence at some point? How would you think about that? Well, the good news is we don't have to answer that question to, access, to successfully refute Zeke. And here's the question he didn't answer and can't answer. How does it follow that because a living entity may split, that it wasn't a whole living entity prior to the split? Math, Matt, if you were to cut a flatworm in half, you'd get two flatworms. Does it follow there was no flatworm prior to the split? Mm. So the fact that an entity may split does not mean it wasn't a whole living entity prior to the split. Mm. So the twinning argument is not persuasive to me at all. By the way, if the unborn are not human because a twin can be formed from them, we have a difficult question to ask, and that is this. With cloning technology that we now have in place, a twin can be formed from any one of us. We can take a somatic cell from you, strip its DNA, slap donor DNA in there, and voila, we could end up getting a twin of you. Does it follow, there, therefore, that you do not exist because a twin can be formed from you? This is not a good argument. So the, the, the response to that would probably be something like, well, but we're talking about a natural process inside the human body as part of the kind of the normal process of a human development. And so in that case, having the potential for a, a twin uh, would imply something about the status of that initial clump of cells. 
I don't think they can reply that way because I think the analogy holds in ways it needs to hold, and that is their essential argument is that because a living entity can split, it's not a whole living entity because that can be a possibility. Hmm. Well, you know, I think then the flatworm example works very well. You can't say that just because an entity splits, it wasn't a whole living human being. With analogies, you always want to keep focused on the part that's essential. No analogy is perfect, but it can be relevant in the ways it needs to be relevant. And in this case, I think our flatworm example is relevant. Yeah. It's amazing too how assumptions can be smuggled in though with analogies uh, that you maybe yes. again didn't didn't see there, but they are they're playing a big part in why the analogy works or doesn't yes. work. Yes. Correct. So let's talk about then that other the other argument that you made the one about uh, women grieving uh, in different ways for a miscarriage versus losing uh, losing a a, bo- a born child. Uh, how would you respond to something like that? Well, I want to be very careful here and sensitive. Uh, there's listeners hearing us right now who have suffered the the pain of miscarriage, and I don't want to downplay that at all, because for some re- women you and I know, and maybe even some fathers too. The pain of miscarriage has been every bit as great as the loss of a born child. But let's set that aside for the moment. Here's the question for Zeke. How do my feelings about something change what it is ontologically? Hmm. If I were to get a text message saying one of my own kids has died today, I would feel worse about that than hearing that 10,000 children died in India today from malnutrition. Hmm. Does it follow those Indian children are less human than my own kid? No, it just means I have a stronger tie to my own child. It says nothing about the humanity of those others. So my feelings about something don't determine what it is. That's such a... I'm struck that a lot of these arguments that Zeke is making, they do seem to be attacking the consistency of the pro-life person rather than anything to do with the argument of the pro-life position. Precisely. And a lot of evangelicals fall for this. They think, oh my, we're not being consistent. There goes our whole case. No, your case can be good even if you don't apply it consistently. Yeah. And what I find helpful, though, is that you're even demonstrating that for some of these arguments, the pro-life person isn't necessarily being inconsistent. No. Uh, There's just there's good reasons for our intuitions being a certain way or our grief looking a certain way, reasonable reasons for those things to be the case. That's correct. All right, let's, let's turn then uh, to the philosophical test that Zeke would put forth. Uh, and these arguments, they seem to be some of the most often apl- employed or even just assumed in public discussion about abortion to me. And, and so in light of that, they seem really important for us to understand how to refute. So maybe make yeah. that case for us. Zeke is going to argue two philosophical arguments. The first is the unborn are human, but they're not persons. And it's personhood that matters, not species membership. And until you have desires, cognitive awareness, you're not a person. You may be a human biologically, but you're not the same being then as you are now. That personhood begins with what we call mental continuity, having a sense of yourself existing over time, as Peter Singer would argue or having desires to go on living the way Michael Tooley might argue. Until you have those things, you are a human, but you're not a person. Your identity doesn't begin until personhood, not at bodily existence. Mm. The second thing Zeke's going to argue is, even if we grant that you're a human being and a person with a right to life, you still do not have a right to use the body of another person to sustain your own life. You may withhold that support if you want. 
And he's going to use Judith Jarvis Thompson's famous violinist argument, where she argues that imagine you wake up one morning and find yourself surgically connected to a world-famous violinist who's been put there by the Society of Music Lovers. And this violinist has a deadly kidney ailment. He will die if he's not hooked up to you and use your blood type to save his life. And as you're waking up trying to break free, the hospital staff says, listen, you got to stay hooked up. We're sorry, but he's a, he's a human being with a right to life. And if you disconnect, he dies. So we realize this is inconvenient for you, but too bad. He's a person with a right to life. You're going to have to endure this for nine months until he gets better. And then Thompson asks a great question that Zeke puts out there very dramatically. He says, it would certainly be nice if you let your body be used this way, but must you? Hmm. And that throws the audience into all kinds of convulsions. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a powerful uh, idea there because we value so much this personal autonomy and freedom in our country and just uh, as individual humans. So the thought right. of imposing the care of another human being, if it even is a person, uh, as going back to that first argument, does right. seem potentially unjust. So how would you respond to something like that? Well, I'll take Thompson's argument first, the bodily autonomy one, then I'll jump to the personhood argument after that. The problem with this whole idea is abortion is much more than merely withholding support. Let's say that Maggie has a terrible disease. I'll just say she has cancer, God forbid, but just for the sake of, of argument. And she needs your blood type to be cured. Let's say you may withhold giving her a blood transfusion. Abortion is much more than merely withholding support. It's intentionally killing another human being. And Zeke just focuses on the withholding of support part of this, not the actual intentional killing as outlined in our syllogism. I think my colleague Frank Beckwith puts it real well. He says calling abortion merely the withholding of support is kind of like suffocating someone with a pillow and calling it the withdrawing of oxygen. There's a whole lot more going on here than merely withholding support hmm. or intentionally killing an innocent human being. But secondly, why should we believe that a mother being hooked up to her own child is morally equivalent to you being hooked up to a total stranger? You may not have responsibility for a total stranger violinist, but parents do have responsibilities to their own offspring. And this is a major flaw, I think, in the whole line of Zeke's argument here. By the way, if we have no duty to our unborn offspring because merely being biologically related confers no special responsibilities on you as a parent, we can also then say if bio biology confers no special duties on me, I can abandon my aging parents. Hmm. And by the way, wouldn't this be a good argument for child abandonment as well? The mother does no, doesn't consent to provide any more support for the child. Therefore, she just abandons him. Yeah. We would think that awful. Yeah, you start to apply that line of argumentation in other contexts, and it be immediately becomes uh, as distasteful as it actually is. You can kind of see the problem with it. Let's go yeah. to that the issue of personhood versus humanity. I think that one can be especially powerful, and people will often point to, think of all the human skin cells that you lose every day. Uh, you don't think right. anything of that. It doesn't strike you as a, a travesty, so that just being human doesn't necessarily confer the value that we think of with personhood. Right. Now, keep in mind, that's actually a scientific argument. And, and you're, I'm glad you brought it up because your critic at that point is confusing parts with holes. 
These skin cells on the back of my hand that I shed daily are merely part of a whole distinct living human being, me. There's a difference in kind between each of our bodily cells and the whole living embryos we once were from the moment of fertilization. And that's the thing the critic is missing. Uh, embryos are not mere parts of human beings. They are themselves distinct living organisms. Hmm. Uh, Zeke argued that you have to have cognitive ability, self-awareness, desire to see yourself living over time to count as a person. Pro-lifers need to get in the habit of asking our critics, why should I believe there can be such a thing as a human that's not a person? I mean, make the critic defend his own claim. If I claim that there's a pink elephant swinging above your head right now, Matt, I bear the burden of proof, not <laughs> you. Why do we so easily take the burden of proof when it's not ours to make? For example, I'll hear pro-lifers say, Oh, well, fetuses in the womb are dreaming by week 11 and they can feel pain by week 13 and they have cognitive memories as early as, as 18 weeks. These are wrong answers. As soon as you answer that way, you've bought the premise that cognitive development is what gives you value and a right to life. Right. Challenge the premise. I would ask Peter Singer, how self-aware do I have to be not to be killed? And why that level of self-awareness and not something else? Make him defend his claim. Not I don't need to do yeah. it. Does that apply to like heartbeat laws where, again, we, we sort of view the heartbeat as this uh, demonstration of humanity? Is that kind of falling into the same kind of trap? Philosophically, it does. But legislatively, I can understand why a heartbeat law might be a good thing to do. If you've got enough votes in the chamber to ban abortion at heartbeat, but you don't have enough votes to ban it at conception, by all means, protect children mm. from heartbeat forward. But our position is not that life begins at heartbeat. It's that it begins at fertilization and that that's a distinct living whole human being with the same identity at conception that it will have at age 87 when it dies, let's say. Yeah. Uh, you're the same being now as you were then. And if you are intrinsically valuable now, you are intrinsically valuable then. That's the essence of our philosophic case. And I would want, you know, let's say Michael Tooley or somebody like him says, well, until you have immediately exercisable desires, you're not a person. A slave can be indoctrinated not to desire his freedom. Does that mean he's not entitled to it? How does having immediately exercisable desires confer personhood? Why is that trait decisive? and not say having a belly button that points out rather than in. Our critics need to argue for that, not merely assert it. And these personhood objections are largely just assertions that are completely arbitrary. And by the way, they're also based on an underlying worldview that I talk about in the second edition of The Case for Life called body self-dualism. And this worldview is one, Matt, that Christians really need to take seriously yeah. because it impacts not only abortion, but the transgender issue, the gay marriage issue. Body self-dualism says that the real you has nothing to do with your body. The real you is your thoughts, your desires, your aims, your cognitive processes. Until you have those things, there's no you there when it comes to the abortion issue in, on this view. And there's also no you there any longer if you were to develop Alzheimer's disease or, or otherwise suffer from memory loss. So this view that the real you is your thoughts, your aims, and your mental life, your desires, not your body. On body self-dualism, your body has no intrinsic purposes. That is not a biblical worldview of the human body where we do see that the body has intrinsic purposes. But on body self-dualism, I could say something like, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. 
or I'm a woman trapped in a man's body is more often what you hear. Mm. And that claim makes no sense at all unless you assume there's a a clear dichotomy between a person and his body. The biblical view is that we're a dynamic union of body and soul. From the beginning, we are not pure body. We are not pure soul. We're a dynamic union of body and soul. So what have been some of the best arguments that you've heard, or what's what's the response that you might hear from, uh, again, the the pro-abortion position when you confront them with these assumptions, these theological assumptions that they might be making, what's the response to that kind of a lot? Well, one of the new thinkers on the block is a gal named Kate Greasley from Oxford, and she makes an interesting argument. I don't agree with it, but I, I can at least find it interesting. She argues that, yes, it's true, development does not end at birth, and the problem with threshold argument, or the problem with development argue, arguments is that if you say that it's development that gives us value, those with more of it are going to have a greater right to life than those with less, and development doesn't end at birth, so that would mean that a 20-year-old has a greater right to life than a 10-year-old or a 5-year-old. And the way Greasley tries to get around this is she says, look, let's stipulate that once you cross a certain threshold, you are in a range of personhood where you don't become more of a person once you're in the range. And she gives this example. If you look at Hoboken, New Jersey, it's barely in the state of New Jersey. In fact, it's right on the border of the Hudson River with New York. If you look at Princeton, New Jersey, it's smack dab in the middle of the state. No question it's in New Jersey. But we don't think that Hoboken is less valuable and less of a city in New Jersey than we think Princeton is. And likewise, once you were born, she argues, you are in the range of personhood, even though you will continue to develop after that. My question is, who are you to stipulate its birth that is the decisive Hmm. place? Why is it that threshold and not something else? I could argue that fertilization is actually a more dramatic departure, a more dramatic threshold. And I think that a lot of people have bought the notion that we can just arbitrarily decide that, hey, it's it's this point birth or it's self-awareness, and they just establish a line, but they don't really argue for why that's the line and why we should draw it there. Hmm, yeah. All right. Maybe the last category of arguments that Zeke would make is that the pro-life position fails the sociological test, or in other words, the common good test. How so? Well, he would argue that we've had 50 years of legal abortion. And Zeke, by the way, tells his audience that he's glad Roe v. Wade was overturned because he thinks it was a poorly decided legal decision. But sociologically, he argues that you can't just pull the rug out from women who for 50 years have been told you have a right to an abortion and then tell them you can't have it anymore. He says there's going to be some deleterious uh, results from this one of which is going to be women are going to seek illegal abortions that could harm them. And it's not very pro-life to want to subject women to harmful abortion procedures that could kill them. Uh, Secondly, he would argue that you have precedent here, that we need to respect stare decisis, meaning we've had a precedent of abortion and maybe we need to have that law continue and just give it a better legal foundation than Roe gave it. We shouldn't just throw out laws that are established and grounded in our foundation as a republic. Hmm. And we see a lot of that argumentation happening today even. There's just a lot of talk about uh, just the importance of access to health care and the the strain that uh, the striking down of Roe v. Wade has put on 
many women and families who are seeking abortions and have to travel great distances to find them. Uh, this seems to be a pretty powerful category of argumentation uh, that is being made uh, in the public right now. It is because people have been fed the lie that abortion is health care. Health care does not intentionally kill people. Uh, I know there are people who want to redefine it to include that so that it includes assisted suicide, involuntary euthanasia, and a host of other things. But healthcare is about making the patient better, not worse off. Uh, so we shouldn't accept the definition of abortion as healthcare. Hmm. That's a euphemism. We should challenge it. Uh, secondly, the fact that something's been on the books for 50 years does not mean we shouldn't overturn it. Laws against slavery had been on the books permitting slavery for decades prior to their being ended. It didn't mean we shouldn't have overturned slavery. Laws against racial segregation were on the books for decades. That didn't mean it was wrong to challenge them and overturn those. When Brown versus the Board of Education was passed by the Supreme Court, the precedent that they were arguing against, Plessy versus Ferguson, had been the precedent for almost 50 years but that didn't mean racial segregation was a good thing and we ought to continue it. So just because something's been there for a while does not mean it's somehow good to keep it going. Mm. And it's another good example where uh, that argument does nothing to touch the core syllogism uh, related to the pro-life cause. It really is just saying it's been this way for a long time and we're used to it. So why would we change it? Which is kind of not, correct. not the issue. Yeah. And I think if you read the writings of Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, and others, they give you a very good insight as to why appealing to tradition is not always good and beneficial. Mm, yeah. Some of the greatest evils of uh, world history were things that at the time were accepted by the broader society. They were cheered on and supported in many ways, and it's, it almost makes the, the evil worse because of that fact. Communism was a definite precedent in Eastern Europe and in much of Asia, and communist dictators killed over 100 million of their own people. Merely appealing to tradition or precedent is not necessarily a good and moral thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, Scott, as you take a step back then and think about the impact that this this session with Zeke Diversity has on students, young people who are hearing it for the first time, uh, as you walk through and deconstruct his arguments, and we've heard a really abbreviated form of that today, um, do people tend to feel, do they say that they feel more confident coming out of that? Do, they, do you feel like they have more tools then and they're ready to go and actually start to uh, respond to some of these arguments they hear their friends or family members or coworkers making? Well, if the question is, do they feel like they're professional pro-life apologists at that point? No. But here's what they do have. They're now inoculated against those arguments. When they hear them in the classroom, they'll go, wait a minute, I heard somebody talk about that, and I know there's answers to that. I just need to do a little digging to find those answers. Mm -hmm. Instead of being surprised and saying, hey, my Christian worldview is inadequate. They didn't prepare me for this. And haven't we all heard the stories of people who send their kids off to a secular university and the kid comes home for Thanksgiving break in semester one and he's totally leftward in his thinking and he's deconstructing his faith. And when you ask why, he says, because people hid the truth from me. They didn't tell me there were other ways to think about these things. Well, we better expose our students to those other ways before they leave. Mm. And that's one of the things I love most about your book, The Case for Life. And as you said, uh, coming out with a second edition, very robust, lots of new material. But I think sometimes 
we can think about this issue as something for the experts, for people like you who have got years of experience making these arguments in the public sphere, who could get on a podcast and have a debate with somebody and, and do okay. And we just think, that's not me. I can't do that. But I think one of the things I love about your book is that it does train the individual Christian, maybe first and foremost, for his or her own sake, for her, for our own confidence in these things, so that we can be alert to uh, the smuggled assumptions and poor arguments that often are thrown at us from the other side. And then maybe there's even the ability to then recommend this to another Christian friend or a child who's struggling with these things, who's wondering. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean we all have to go out and become public apologists for the pro-life position. Well, nobody thinks it's wrong for all of us to be considered evangelists. In the same way, I I would argue that it's not wrong to assume that we all ought to be speaking out on the single greatest moral tragedy of our time. Mm. There is no moral issue that comes anywhere close to the number of unborn children killed under Roe v. Wade's tyrannical rulership in our country. We're talking about well over 60 million lives lost. That's Yankee Stadium filled 1,300 plus times over. That is just incomprehensible, the number of lives lost, and that demands a response from us as Christians, and it needs to be a biblical response and an intelligent one. Mm -hmm. Well, Scott, thank you so much for helping us to think about what that response can look like and helping us think through the case for abortion as we then turn and, and contemplate the case for life. Scott, we really appreciate that. Thank you, Matt. That was Scott Klusendorf on how to refute pro-abortion arguments. For more, be sure to check out the second edition of his book, The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. Pick up a print copy of this new book for 30% off, or get the ebook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.